Turn to Matthew 19. That's where we're going to be at. We're looking at 12 verses here in the 19th chapter. Starting in verse 1, please follow along in your Bible as I read. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for one to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by man, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Father, we ask that you would help us as we dive into your word. We ask that the Spirit would move in our hearts and and soften our hearts, that we would be convicted of our sin, that we would then turn to Christ, and that we ask, God, that we would experience Jesus this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the book, When Sinners Say I Do, by Dave Harvey, it's the story of a scene in which Uh, uh, a marriage is happening and the minister asks, as they used to do, if there's anyone here who knows why these two should not get married, speak now or forever hold your peace. A man stood up in the congregation and he said, I don't mean to be disrespectful or rude, but I just wonder, how can you know I mean, how can anybody know whether or not these two should be married? How can you know? I wonder how to answer that question. Some might say, well, uh, you know because they love each other. Look at the love that they have for each other. I just know that they're, they're going to last. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Oh, I just know they're going to have a good marriage while they're dabbing their eyes, you know. Or maybe, oh, they've been friends for so many years. They've known each other since they were like negative three years old. They are so compatible. I just know. Well, not to throw cold water on that fire, but uh, on compatibility, uh, those of you who are married in the room, you might uh, testify to the fact that there is no such thing as true compatibility. Tim Keller said, there is no one that's compatible for you. 
There is no, it's a myth, everybody. It's a myth. Don't, stop trying to find somebody that's compatible. All right? They're not compatible. So we can check that one off. And then C.S. Lewis goes on talking about love, and Lewis says, love is just a feeling, or love is a feeling. It's a, it's a strong feeling. It's a powerful feeling. He said, but feelings come and go. Of course, what he's talking about is our definition of love when we say they're in love. So nobody's compatible, and the feeling of love will, at some point, go. So let's ask the question, who says they're going to remain together? How do we know they're going to have a good marriage? I want to talk to you today on the topic, to become one. To become one. One cynical author gave us the four D's of all marriages. Depression, despair, drink, and then divorce. You know, our culture is uh, very cynical when it comes to marriage. At the same time, marriage has become quite a topic of debate, hasn't it? It's funny. Marriage is such a Strong topic of debate, yet at the same time, more and more disillusionment that surrounds the concept of marriage. One friend of mine I saw, he changed his Facebook status to married. And in my surprise, I emailed him, messaged him, and I said, hey, congratulations on your marriage. Didn't know you were getting married. And he wrote back and he said, what is marriage anyway? What is marriage? I feel like I'm married today. I changed that status. Now, the Bible lifts up marriage in a way that, that, uh, that, that our culture does not. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, what we see is that marriage showcases creation. Marriage showcases redemption. We saw it in the text already. Jesus says in verse 4 and verse 8, he uses the word from the beginning. Marriage showcases creation. He then talks about, in verse 8 as well, he talks about the old heart that we once had. And that's why we divorce, but we can only assume from that he's referring now to the new heart that we have in Christ. Marriage, in the Bible, showcases redemption as well. Both creation and redemption. So what is it then that makes marriage interesting and important from a biblical standpoint? Well, it has nothing to do with you two lovebirds. But it has everything to do with the Creator and the Redeemer. It has everything to do with God. Now, I recognize that not everybody in our church is married. As a matter of fact, about half our church is single. About half our church is married. Uh, and then we got some kids as well, who I don't think any of them are married. Um, you know, let me just preface it by saying uh, we don't value marriages any more than we value single people at, at the Garden Church. Uh, I didn't just simply sit back last week and think, who do I want to speak to this week? I don't want to speak to the marriage. No, we just preach through the Word of God. And this week's text is Jesus' teaching on marriage. Although singles are also addressed in here, you'll see. 
but singles, uh, it's possible that you might one day be married, so listen up. Singles also, you're surrounded in a church, you're linked up with married people, so please listen up, so you can encourage the married couples in here, so you can be a single person who values and celebrates and strengthens marriages. I heard one wonderful story recently of a small group in which singles uh, in the group realized that there was a marriage problem in the group, and the singles lined up child care with each other and paid for a marriage conference and sent the married people off. The mari- uh, the, this couple off to a marriage conference. What a beautiful picture of how the church just cares for each other. That's why, you know, singles, listen up. Kids, kids, listen up. Because kids, you might be married someday. And so you want to know what marriage is about. Also, uh, if, you're, if you have parents that are married, you want to be able to encourage them in their marriage. Right? So listen up. And married people, of course, listen up. Listen up. All right, so as we get into this, what we see is a couple scenes. We see two scenes, actually. Scene one, we see the Pharisees' intention. And in scene two, we see the disciples' confusion. So let's start off with scene one. Pharisees come to Jesus, and they have a couple questions they're going to ask him. Have you guys ever asked somebody a question only to trap them in their answer? For instance, who are you going to vote for? As if you care. (laughs) The disciples come to Jesus and they ask him a question. Now, you got to understand, I'm sorry, the, the Pharisees come to Jesus. They're not coming to Jesus as if Jesus is the marriage guru. They're not coming to Jesus as if this is a Q&A at a marriage seminar. But rather, verse 3, we see that they're coming to Jesus with one intention, and that is to do what? That is to test him. They're coming to test him. They're coming so they can trap him in his answer. And so we, te- we see two tricky questions, actually. Let's look at the first tricky question they ask Jesus right there in verse 4. Or verse 3, they say, Is it lawful... To divorce one's wife for any cause. Now that is a loaded question. It's a a religiously loaded question. In that in this day there was a lot of debate going on as to who is allowed to divorce their wives. By this time in Israel's history it had become pretty much the culture to where any man, any male, any husband who just simply didn't like his wife anymore and he found anything wrong with her, or one rabbi actually taught if he finds another woman that he believes is more beautiful, then he is free to divorce his wife. By the way, women, you weren't allowed to divorce your husbands. This was a culture that squashed the female. And so they're coming to Jesus with this religiously loaded question that's already a topic of debate, and they want to trap him. They want to get him to say something that's, that's dis, uh, uh, dishonest, that's dis, dis, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Come on, help me. Disagrees with the Old Testament. And so they ask him, uh, any cause? Is it possible? Now, Jesus... Um, Oh, I'm sorry, before I get into this, it's also politically loaded. Just really quick. You might remember, uh, Herod has already divorced and remarried uh, his wives. 
And John the Baptist spoke out against it. And remember what happened to John the Baptist. And so we can only assume the Pharisees are hoping that Jesus might get his, love, his head lobbed off as well. All right, so Jesus' answer is absolutely impeccable. In verse 4, he quotes Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Have you not read that from the beginning God made them male and female? God made them male and female. Verse, and then verse 5, he quotes Genesis 2, 24. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Now this text in Jesus' teaching is not primarily about defending heterosexual marriage. Yet it's important to note here that Jesus does establish marriage on the grounds of male and female. Uh, created in the image of God. God is a three-in-one. God is a, uh, a, a God of diversity, uh, complementary parts in the Godhead that come together in unity. And so then when God created humans, it says he created them, male and female, in his image. And so there's something then we can deduce from that, that about male and female, that when they come together in this what's called a one flesh relationship, there's something distinct about that. That happens when, uh, when only a male and female come together, that then um, displays the image of God. And so what this is about, this male and female complementary parts coming together as one in marriage, this is not about politics. This isn't about voting or debates. No, this is, this is just this is simply about the displaying of God's glory. Establishing it in, in the creation. Then he goes on, he says, since he created male and female, then therefore, meaning since this is the case, Therefore, in verse 6, the two come together as one. If you know the creation story, one became two, and two, when those two come back together, they come back together as one. Verse 6, he goes on, what therefore God has joined together, and that, that word signifies like a, a, a gluing uh, together, or uh, uh, some, some translations in, would inter interpret that yoked together. They, since God has glued them together, let not man separate them. Like two has become one. All right, let's go to the next tricky question they then ask. With that being said... Which, by the way, do you, do you realize Jesus didn't even give a yes or a no? Like, he just simply expounded Scripture. And so that leads them to ask this next question here in verse, verse 7. He says, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Why did Moses, what's the word he, they, they ask there? Why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce. And so, did Moses ever command divorce? Absolutely not. Do you see the trickiness in their answers? They're trying to trip him up. Well, Jesus recognizes that. And there in verse 
verse 8, Jesus shows that Moses never commanded divorce. But Moses merely permitted it or allowed it. And then he asks this question before he even gives his answer. Why does Moses allow divorce in the Old Testament? And we can go there. Turn your Bibles if you want really quick to Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. If you're not quick on the draw, don't worry about it. I'll just read it for you. It says, when a man takes his wife and marries her, and then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency. Everybody say indecency. That's an important word. Because he has found some indecency in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand. Now check this out. In the ancient world, women were treated like trash. And if a man didn't want his wife anymore, he would just get rid of her, and now she's used goods. What is Moses doing here? He's actually protecting women and lifting up the value of women by regulating divorce, by putting a, a stamp on it, by saying, hold up. No. If you're going to divorce, you've got to give her a certificate. You've got to at least let her know. And he says that, uh, that there is divorce allowed, yes, if you find something. But then he says some matter of indecency in verse 1 right there. That word indecency means literally a matter of nakedness. Which perfectly, by the way, goes in line with where Jesus is going to go. Jesus and Moses are not separate. They're not looking the opposite directions, but rather they're in agreement. And Jesus is about to explain to us what Moses was getting at. So Jesus goes on and he says... Um, well, Moses allowed this because of the hardness of your heart. This isn't God's, he's not founding divorce in creation. He's founding divorce, establishing that on the premise of the hardness of the human heart. From the beginning, he says it was not so in verse 8. Verse 9, he goes on to say, then whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another commits adultery. Jesus says that if you just simply throw off your marriage and you go into another marriage, he says that you're committing adultery in verse 9. Why is that? Well, it's because we saw in verse 6 that God has joined these two together. And someone says, well, I was young, I didn't know what I was doing, I was foolish, I was actually a little drunk. Well, guess what? You didn't join yourself with your wife. God did. Every marriage is founded on the fact that God has joined these two together. And so they are bound, and as a result, if they marry another, that is um, that is adultery. Now, check this out. One of the issues we have in our culture is that we separate sex from marriage. We sort of treat sex and marriage in the same way that you might think of food in the dinner table. Meaning, of course, the dinner table is made for food. Of course, the dinner table is where we're technically supposed to eat our food. But I like to eat my food out on the couch. That's where I like to eat. And you know what? It's the same food. Now, some people prefer the dinner table. That's great. If you like the traditional food at the dinner table, that is totally fine. I just prefer my food on the sofa. 
And you know what? You know what? Some people sit around the dinner table and they don't even eat food. Therefore, I think the dinner table might even be the problem. You eat more food if you sit on the sofa. Man, that is exactly how we treat marriage and sex, isn't it? Are they two just distinct? Like, yeah, technically they go together, but not really, like, whatever. Well, no. So in creation, what we see is the two become what? One flesh. Do you know what one flesh is a reference to in the Bible? Sex. Marriage is the coming together of two people in vulnerability. Listen, marriage, at a metaphorical level, marriage is taking your clothes off and coming together as one and saying, I accept you completely, metaphorically. It's saying, this is who I am, and I'm giving myself to you, and you are accepting me for who I am. And do you know what the picture of marriage is? It's taking the clothes off and coming together. the one flesh relationship. It's the seal. It's, it's the ceremony of marriage, essentially. Now, marriage, I want to be clear, does not, e- I'm sorry, sex does not equal marriage, but sex is the picture of marriage. One author put it this way. He said, that when a couple comes together, their entire lives come together and they share everything. They share bank accounts, they share a house, they share futures, they share children, but they share it. And God's picture for that is the marriage bed. Meaning, um, sex within marriage is a vow renewal ceremony. Tim Keller likens it to eating communion. Every time we eat communion, what are we doing? We're remembering the time that we first believed. Every time we eat communion, what are we doing? We're, we're remembering the covenant that we have with God. We're not getting saved again. We're remembering it. We're celebrating it, right? Now take communion outside of conversion, and it doesn't mean anything. It's just now about the belly. It's about eating and drinking, getting drunk, getting fat. Take sex outside of marriage, and it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean what it's supposed to mean. What is marriage supposed to mean? I'm sorry, what is sex marriage supposed to mean? It is a vow renewal ceremony. It's taking us back to the day that we came together. It's taking us back to the day that we said, I do. It's, it's saying, I, I still do. I, I still give myself completely to you. I still accept you as you are and for who you are. It's this beautiful ceremony that happens on a regular within a marriage. So now adultery is to, is to take that act of marriage and to perform it with somebody that you're not married, with, married to. The word that's used here that Jesus uses is the word porneia. Everybody say porneia. Porneia. What is that? Well, porneia is a general r- word that refers to sexual immorality. Now, uh, it... it uh, it is important to recognize that uh, Jesus does not command divorce for adultery. He does not command it for porneia. He doesn't say you must. By the way, some of the rabbis in his day did command it. Jesus doesn't command it. He merely permits it. I think there's nothing more beautiful than a marriage that's restored after adultery. Now, what is porneia? 
some uh, question whether or not that might even refer to lust. That if someone lusts after another, looks at pornography, say, that they are that the, the innocent party is now freed from the marriage. Does porneo refer to lust? Here's my thought on that. I don't think it does. Uh, because Jesus is making it harder to get divorced, not easier. If porneia referred to lust, I bet you every married couple in this room would be freed from their spouse. No, Jesus is making it harder to get divorced, not easier. I believe that porneia, as it's traditionally understood, is, is to reference the actual linking up the physical union. In the same way, by the way, that hate is, has the same root sin as murder, we all understand that murder actually does have different ramifications. That they're actually not the same thing. In the same way that lust is the same root sin as adultery, we understand that actual adultery does have different ramifications. So Jesus here permits adultery. Now, um, I'm sorry, does not permit adultery. That's what happens when you just try to finish a sentence really quickly. Jesus permits divorce in the case of adultery. He basically leaves us with two options, and we're going to look at the second option here. What would have been shocking to the people of Jesus' day is not that Jesus allowed uh, divorce for adultery, but rather the fact that Jesus called divorce for any other reason adultery. That you have to stay together. That would have been shocking in the first century. And we see, look at the disciples' response. So here's the disciples' confusion. Maybe we could call it the disciples' ignorance. Verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Like, if you're telling me that marriage is like forever on this earth, as long as we both shall live, and, that, and we, that's actually true, man, it'd be better just to, for nobody to marry. That's a huge commitment. Look, they were just afraid of commitment back in that day as we are today. And people say the same thing today, don't they? Well, man, if that's the case, it's better not to marry. Bump that. We'll just live together. We'll just hang out, whatever. Just stay single. Well, Jesus goes on to answer them, and he says, well, not everyone can receive. Everybody see, the, see where it says, this saying? That word, this saying, those words, I think Jesus is referring to the question that's asked by the disciples or the statement that the disciples make rather than his own teaching. What he's saying is, is not everybody can receive what you're saying to stay single. Not everybody can receive that. And then Jesus gives us three kinds of eunuchs. Now, it seems offensive today, but eunuch, Jesus is using as a nickname for single people. All right, so we're not going to start eunuchs ministry. but it would have made sense in their day. So Jesus gives us three kinds of eunuchs. He says there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, number one. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs, number two. And there are those who have made themselves eunuchs. Now, the first kind of eunuch are natural eunuchs, meaning these would be people probably who have some kind of defect at birth or they have no sex drive. There's something at birth that they were born with and they just simply are uh, not given to biblical marriage. Secondly, he said there are those 
um, who have been made eunuchs, meaning this would be referring to the traditional eunuchs of the day, someone who literally has been castrated by man uh, for the service of some king or some queen, some high court official. But then he says there's this third type, and these, this is the unique kind of eunuch that I think he wants us to draw our attention to. He says there's this third type who, who have made themselves eunuchs. Now, he doesn't mean that literally. He means it figuratively. He, there are those who have made themselves eunuchs, and then he says for the sake of the kingdom. There are those who are able to be married. There are those who have a sex drive. There are those who physically could be married. They, they, there's nothing wrong with they. They would like to be married even at some level, but they have chosen, at least in this stage of their life, to remain single for the sake of the kingdom. Now, this is really right along the lines of what Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32. Paul says, listen, the married people, they have a lot of cares in this world. They have a lot of anxieties in this world. They've got a lot to think about. They've got a wife or a husband. He says, to the unmarried, uh, they don't have as many cares in this world, meaning there's not a significant other in their life that consumes so much of their time. But he says, the unmarried, on the other hand, can focus their entire life on how to please, instead of their spouse, how to please the Lord. And then in verse 34, he says that the unmarried can spend their energies and their time focusing on how to be holy in both body and spirit. And so it seems then that Jesus is saying singleness is good. Marriage is good. Friends, singleness is hard. But these are kind of our two options. To be in a lifelong, committed marriage enjoying the one flesh relationship to you alone do I pledge myself none other or to remain celibate and single and to do so for the glory of God those are our it's, it's fairly simple now being Jesus is setting this up and placing, again, sex inside of marriage and, and showing us the lifelong commitment of marriage and, and even showing us the reality of those who might not be married but continue to remain in celibacy. He's doing this all and showing this all so that we might protect what marriage displays. Because again, remember, this isn't about you not about me. It's, it's not about two lovebirds. It's not about a single person or a married, married uh, couple. This is about the one whom is the creator and the redeemer through marriage. So let me give you two applications here. Number one, Christian marriage showcases creation. Christian marriage showcases creation. I once heard a story of a man who was putting together a 1,000-piece puzzle, and he took the box off and was looking at the picture on the box and was working at this puzzle but had a difficult time getting the, the puzzle pieces, pieces to match what he was seeing on the box, and he was trying to manipulate them and put them together in ways that just, it just wasn't working. 
And then after a few minutes of working on it, what he realized was that he had the wrong box cover. Someone switched the box top on this puzzle. And so he found the right box cover and started working on the puzzle, and it all made sense. You know, sometimes I think we're looking at the wrong image as we're trying to piece our marriages together. We're looking on the picture that the culture has painted for us. We're not looking at the picture that God has painted for us. In order for Christian marriage to work, we have to understand what picture we're looking at. We have to be operating and working and piecing our puzzle together off of the right picture. And that's why it's so foundational to understand that marriage showcases creation. It's about God and the Creator. From the beginning, it's used twice in Jesus' answers, verse 4 and verse 8. Marriage is not man-made, but rather marriage is God-made. Marriage is God-made. The creation, we believe, is good. Creation is not a bad thing. And why is it that we believe that creation is good? Well, it's because we believe that the Creator is good. Creation represents and displays and pictures and proclaims the Creator. The God who is over all of these things and over you and me. And so as we look at marriage, we see creation and therefore we see the Creator. Listen, all of redemptive history has a forward-backward kind of movement. As we move forward through redemptive history, we're always moving backward toward creation. God is restoring and renewing His creation to operate and to live in the way that He intended it to operate and to be lived. Friends, what aspects of your own life are out of line with God's created intent? Well, I could hear a single ask this question. If God created male and female to be married, does that mean that I, as a single person, am I living outside of God's created intent? Well, absolutely not. Listen, as sin has entered the world, the whole world doesn't operate as it should. And it is so clear in Jesus' ministry and in his own life as a single person, in Paul's ministry, in Paul's life, in Paul's writings, it is so clear that there are those who live as a single person, maybe their entire lives, for the sake of God, for the sake of his glory, looking forward to what is to come. Which, by the way, marriage is just a taste of. So single people, you are not outside of God's will just simply because you're single. But for those who are married, listen, marriage is permanent. Jesus says that, there, that, that, that a man shall leave his father and mother like to, to get away, to leave, to cut it off, to, to walk away from and cling to his wife and God then joins them, glues them together. What that means is this. It means that the most permanent relationship in this world is not the parent-child relationship, but the most permanent relationship in this world is the husband and wife relationship. When you're married, you are married permanently. But we have to, you understand, have the right picture that we're looking at in order to see this. In order, in, in order to see how beautiful that actually is. And how right that actually is. 
Well, this leads us to our second application point, and that is this. It not only showcases creation, but marriage showcases redemption. On this issue of a new heart, one man said to me once, he said that he got to the point in his own marriage in which he was thinking about leaving his wife. He thought he had come to the end of his rope. He could no longer love her. And just before that moment that he left his wife, he took it to the Lord, and God just did something in his heart and warmed his heart for his wife in a new way. And he said, I began to actually love my wife in the way that God loves her. And it was a way that I had never loved anyone. Friends, this is what Jesus is talking about. Moses permitted divorce because of the hardness of your heart. Oh, but what does it mean to be in Christ? It means that you're a new creation. The old has been put away. Behold, all things have become new. You have died with Christ. And you're risen to new life. Christians no longer have a hard heart, but Christians have a heart that is soft and malleable and warmed by the Spirit of God. And therefore, as it showcases redemption, Christians have a unique ability to remain married. We have a unique ability to forgive and to love and to cherish until death do we part. Why is it that we have that ability? It's because God has that ability. And he works it out through us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I often quote him in marriages that I lead. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said to friends of his that were getting married, he said, from this day forward, it's no longer your love that will hold your marriage together but it's your marriage that will hold your love together. You see, feelings come and go, but understanding the redemptive aspect of marriage begs us to fall back in love when we fall off. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. I want to close with these verses. Because the redemptive aspect of marriage only broadens as we continue in the scriptures. In chapter 5, verse 31, the Apostle Paul also quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But then look what he says in verse 32, chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians. He says, this mystery, this two becoming one, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Listen, Paul is wrapping up a teaching on marriage here. And the way he wraps it up is he says, it's not actually about you. All that I've said about marriage, all that I've said about husbands loving and wives respecting their husbands and all of these good things and the two becoming one, oh, it's such a profound mystery. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
do you see why marriage is so important? Married people, single people, children, do you see why marriage is so important? It's because it's about Christ and the church. It's about our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who has sought us, who has loved us, who has set his affections upon us, and who has redeemed us, and who has committed himself to us and said, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. Do you understand, Christians, that a Christian leaving their marriage actually lies to the world about the gospel? If marriage is about Christ and the church, then we display the hope of the gospel through staying in our marriages through showing the commitment that is Jesus Christ, the unconditional love of the Father, the agape love. And then you might ask the question, well, statistically, why is it that so many Christians still get divorced? And it's true, if you look at divorce rates, professing Christians divorce as much as, as, much as uh, their non-Christian counterparts. Why is that? Well, the answer is, it has nothing to do, it's nothing wrong with the gospel. It's nothing wrong with God's word. It's nothing wrong with the church. But what that tells us is that American Christianity has been far too influenced by America, by our culture. Much more than the culture has been influenced by the word. Friends, we just often look too much like the world. And when the world throws in the towel, we throw in the towel. For the sake of Christ, stay married. Encourage marriages, godly marriages. We don't live by moralistic codes. We live to the glory of God. And we want all that represents God and all that displays God to display God rightly and correctly so that God and Christ might be treasured. Listen, back in the day, they used to stay married just for the sake of staying married. Right? Back in the day, it don't matter if I hate you. We'll, live in, we'll sleep in separate beds if we have to, separate rooms. Like half your grandparents probably ended up in separate rooms by the time, Right? Back in the day, they stayed married, and love wasn't all that big of a deal. Let's just don't get divorced, right? Well, today, we've kind of flipped that. Today, if you remain married and you don't have the feelings, it's almost like seen as immoral. And so today, if, if you just don't feel it anymore, then, then just simply get out of it. But the gospel says that marriage is about Christ and the church. The gospel says that marriage is not about our feelings. But marriage demands love. It demands feelings and affections. And the gospel tells us that in Christ we are new creations and we have new hearts and we can have renewed love for our spouse. Singles, do you know the love of Christ? Singles, do you know that the love of Christ is so far beyond the kind of love that any spouse would ever have for you? 
Singles, do you understand that you have the fullness of God in Christ now as a single person? Singles, do you understand that, that marriage is merely a taste of what's to come? That you are forever going to un- understand the beauty of it all and the wholeness of love uh, forever and ever with Jesus Christ? Singles, I know that sometimes because of social media and some other things, it's easy to, to become envious of those who seem to have good marriages. Singles, when you see someone who has a good marriage, don't be envious of them. But first, thank God for that marriage. And secondly, allow that marriage just simply to remind you of the love that Jesus Christ has for you. That's the purpose of it. It's a display. It's a reminder for you. And thank God for that. Divorced folks in the room, I want you to know that you are not second-class citizens either. In Christ, your whole best advice I got as a young married man was from a divorced mentor. Poured into me. And he talked to me about marriage. And in some ways, that's the reason I'm still married today is because of that divorced man. Divorced friends pour into young couples. Teach them from your own mistakes. And married couples in the room know that you're not saved by having a good marriage. Married couples, you are saved, and I should say this to all of us, we are saved because of what marriage represents. Not because of what we do. But we are saved by what marriage represents, and that is Jesus Christ, who has sought us, bought us, pursued us, wooed us, found us, committed himself to us, chose us, betrothed us, and he's coming back for us. One day the groom is going to return for his bride, and the place he's preparing for us will be ready. And we will be caught up together with him in the sky and transformed and brought to the kingdom of God on earth and live forever with God, the bride and the girl. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus Christ and the way that he has loved us. We ask God that you would help us to exhibit and display godly marriages whether single, children, married, or divorced, that we all might understand the wonderful picture that is marriage and that it might point us to Jesus Christ and that as a result, uh, we might worship. We thank you for being our husband, our redeemer, our hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.